Back in uh, 2005, I was uh, at a racing school at Shannonville Speedway, having the time of my life. And then I went into this corner uh, really fast, way too fast. My car slid out of control. I tried to regain control, couldn't regain control. The instructor in the seat next to me is barking out orders. I'm trying to do them. The car slides off the track, and I plow this field. And the inside of my car is just absolutely covered in this dirt as I uh, basically get, you know, <laughs> buried. I felt like Lois Lane in that 70s Superman movie. Ah, the dirt is all coming in the car. And it was, uh, it was terrible. And so we came to a stop, and the first words out of the instructor's mouth were, um, Congratulations. Now, now, you know where, now you know where the line is. And then the guy from the car behind me came up and he asked me if I was in the agricultural program. And then, and then they stopped the whole race. They stopped all the cars. Everyone had to pull over. Everybody had to go up into the tower. And they sat everyone down. They're like, okay, so let's learn from Paul's mistake. And then he starts drawing on the board. Um, our text this morning is Mark chapter 8. And uh, there's something about benefiting from learning from the failure of others. And in this text, Mark chapter 8, we all get to benefit from Peter's dismal failure. And uh, we get to receive, actually, a life-changing teaching from Jesus that we get because of Peter's failure. Mark chapter 8, starting in verse 27. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the village of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others say one of the prophets. And Jesus asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you're the Christ. And Jesus strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And Jesus said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter. And he said, get behind me, Satan. For you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, Jesus said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world? And forfeit his own soul. For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. This is God's word. Now, this is a pivotal, uh, pivotal. This is a pivotal chapter in Mark because for the first eight chapters, 
the gospel writer is unpacking the identity of Jesus. And then for the last eight chapters, he starts to unpack the mission of Jesus, the cross of Jesus. The first half of Mark's gospel, you can almost divide it in half. It's about the identity of the king. And the last half is about the cross of the king. And so in verses 27 and 28, Jesus asks a question. He starts this out by saying, by asking the question, who, who do people say that I am and who do you say that I am? And if you are here this morning and you are considering Christian faith, you're being thoughtful and exploring um, Jesus and who he is, this is not just a good question. This is actually the question. What I mean by that is we can have a lot of thoughtful discussion about what the scripture teaches and why it teaches it. We can have thoughtful debate about what the scripture says and why the scripture says it. But really the answer to this question of who Jesus is, it postures you for how you approach every other question. Now, um, if Jesus is who he says that he is, and he says that he's God, that him and the Father are one, if Jesus is who he says that he is, then everything Jesus says is of utmost importance. But if he's not who he says he is, then nothing he says is of any importance. If Jesus is who he says he is, then everything that the scriptures say, everything the scriptures say is true. Even the parts we don't understand how they could be true, they're true. But if Jesus is not who he says he is, then there's no reason to believe that any of the scripture is true. The hinge on which all of the Christian faith swings is the answer to this question. Who do you say that I am? And so he begins this passage with his, with his disciples ask, you know, asking them this. So Peter answers and he says that he's the Christ, which Christ in the Greek, we've talked about this before, but if you're new, uh, maybe this will be helpful. Christ in the Greek is Christos, and it means the anointed one. And the root word of Christos is, is creel, which, is, which, which means to, to, to rub or pour with oil. And so in ancient uh, history, the kings and priests were coronated with oil. They were divinely authorized by oil. So Jesus Christ is saying, Jesus, the divinely authorized one. So when he says, who do you say that I am? Peter, Peter doesn't say his last name. Peter says, you are the divinely authorized one. And he gives this answer. And uh, we find this throughout uh, Israel's history, as I said. 1 Samuel 16, David is king. He's anointed with oil. Leviticus chapter 8 Aaron is the priest, he's anointed with oil. Psalm 133, the unity of the people of God is described as being so good, it's like the oil that was dripping down the beard of Aaron. Right? So we've got this picture all through Israel's history, and Peter says, by the Spirit of God, who's revealed it to him, says, yes, you are, you are the divinely anointed one. And so in verse 31, the text goes on to call Jesus the Son of Man, which sounds like it's saying that he's human, and he's the Son of Man. And it does mean that he's human, but it means much, much more than that. There are all these prophecies all throughout Israel's history talking about how the Son of Man would come, and this Son of Man was the Messiah. And uh, Daniel chapter 7 is a good example of that, uh, of uh, the God, um, the, 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 this, this Messiah was going to come in the likeness uh, of man, the Son of Man. And so God comes in Jesus in a form that nobody would expect. And not only does he come in a form that Nobody would expect that God would desire to condescend to come that way. 
he, his mission is something that nobody would expect. His kingdom is something that nobody would expect. He's the, he's, his whole way of approaching deliverance is not what anybody would expect. And we know this because he, he says he's going to suffer, he's going to die, he's going to do it voluntarily. And in verse 32, Peter's offended by the whole program. And so Peter is a lot like us, right? Yes, Peter, you got it. You're, oh, you were doing so good. Anyways, it was about that long before his failure. We can identify with Peter. Because when, when Peter says, you're the divinely authorized one, and then Jesus goes on to explain precisely what his mission is and precisely what the divinely authorized one has come to do, Peter's like, that's the worst plan that I've ever heard. And in verse 32, Peter's confused and he's offended at the plan of Jesus. He can't comprehend how evil and injustice would, come, uh, would be defeated by a dying Jesus. Uh, Peter, had an offend, uh, ha- Peter had an agenda that was political and societal uh, of reform. And that's what he wanted from Jesus. Peter was pretty clear on what he needed from Jesus, so he rebuked Jesus. And uh, it's not like Peter missed God's plan, but the rest of the disciples were all like, what an idiot, we get it. Nobody got it. I mean, we really, really benefit from Peter here. Uh, because, you know, he's, uh, he's a little bit like that kid in the class that blurts out the wrong answer. But you were thinking the same thing. And then the teacher explains it, and you're like, ooh. This was good. See, that's what's going on here. When Peter rebukes Jesus, it's not like the rest of the disciples would have, would have been thinking, no, no, this, no, no, Jesus dying, that sounds like a great plan. That sounds exactly how you bring reform. Uh, yes, the Messiah should die. Nobody was thinking that. Nobody throughout all of history thought it. Nobody's interpreting the prophecies that way and, and anticipating the Messiah would come and die. You see, it was only after the resurrection uh, that, that, that they're all able to look backwards throughout all of Israel's history and look at the scriptures, and then they begin to see. Now it all makes sense. Now we can see the, 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 resurrect, the promise of the resurrection even throughout the Old Testament. But they couldn't see it prior to that. It's like watching that movie in 99, uh, The uh, uh, Sixth Sense. Right? If you haven't seen The Sixth Sense, the main character's dead. Uh, if you think I just spoiled it for you, it's been 20 years. Get your priorities straight. <laughs> Okay? In the sixth sense, you get to the end of the movie, the Bruce Willis character has been dead the whole time, and you're like, oh, M. Night. You know the director, M. Night Shyamalan, oh, amazing. And you go back and watch it again, and all of a sudden, the whole movie, every single time, you see it everywhere. Oh, yeah, he's not really looking at that guy. He's not really, oh, I, I see it, I see it, I see it, I see it. That's the Old Testament after the resurrection. Now you can look back through the Old Testament and go, oh, I see it, I see it, I see it, I see it. But at this point, Peter doesn't see it. Nobody sees it. The Pharisees didn't see it. The devil and all the demons in hell didn't see it. Nobody saw it. And so they don't like this plan. And um, so in verse 33, Jesus responds to Peter. It's pretty serious. Get behind me, Satan. That's like incredible. Calls him an adversary. Satan in the Greek, Satana, the, 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 uh, the adversary. Get behind me, adversary. You're not even thinking. Now, why is Jesus so harsh here? Because this is a temptation. You see, remember Jesus was tempted three times in the wilderness, and all three temptations had to do with the same thing in three different ways. You can have glory without suffering. Jesus, you don't need to suffer. You can have glory. And here's Peter again. Hey, Jesus, you don't need to suffer. You don't need to die. You can have glory. 
It's like Peter is coming to Jesus with the exact same precise temptation as the devil. And so Jesus recognizes this attack on his his, uh, divinely authorized mission of the cross. He says, get behind me, Satan. And, uh, And Jesus' words were not he would suffer. If you look at the text, his words were, I must suffer. And that word must changes the, the meaning of the entire, of the entire passage. And it, it's important that we understand that he said he must suffer. Here's why. Um, Jesus' cross was necessary for us, not just personally, but legally. And Jesus' gospel message begins by saying there's a massive debt that's been incurred. And that debt has to be addressed. So for the kids who are in the service here, maybe I'll explain this particular, the way this debt works in this way. Let's say I come to your house and I'm in your living room and I'm telling a story and I'm talking with my hands because that's what I do. And I knock your TV off while I'm talking. I knock it off the TV stand and it falls and it lands on your coffee table and I smash your TV. Now, I can pay for it or you can pay for it Somebody has to pay for it. And even if you muster up the ability to forgive me and you say, it's okay, Paul, we forgive you. You don't have to buy us a new TV. You still absorb the cost of it. Even if you don't replace it, you're absorbing the cost of it. Once a debt is incurred, that debt has to be absorbed somewhere. And so what Jesus says is, I must suffer and die. Not I will, not I'm going to, I have to. Because there is a debt that's been incurred and it, and it needs to be absorbed and somebody needs to absorb it. And so when somebody hurts you or wrongs you or offends you in some way, there is a sense of debt. And in many cases, what's been taken from you can't just be handed back to you. And when you find that something that's been taken from you and it can't be just physically handed back to you, uh, what do you do about that? You can retaliate and you can try to make them pay in some way and inflict hurt or pain in their life so that they get a sense of what you're going through. I mean, you you can do that, but the problem with retaliation is it makes us cold and it makes us hard and we end up perpetuating the cycle of hurt and pain when we retaliate. And that's why there's nothing easy about forgiveness. That's why the first steps towards forgiveness feel like total agony. Because as we forgive someone, we're absorbing the cost. Forgiveness is not saying that what you did was okay. Forgiveness is saying, I'm not requiring that you pay. And so... Personally and globally, none of us are innocent. Personally and globally, all of us have sinned. And really what's going on here in verse 31, when Jesus says, I must suffer, is he's teaching us that all of sin is ultimately against him. When he says, I have to die, he's asserting that he is God. All sin globally is against him. I have to suffer. I have to die. There's a debt and someone has to pay. And you can't pay. So I must pay. And he was glad to pay. And this is the amazing grace of the gospel. 
And so when Jesus goes to the cross, of course, he goes there through the misuse and abuse of power. That's how he got there. It was legal. It wasn't illegal. It wasn't like Jesus was lynched by a mob. There was like a whole legal court process. It was a kangaroo court. Injustice to the skies. And he wasn't murdered illegally. He was murdered legally. And this all had to happen. It all had to happen because as though he went to the cross for the misuse and abuse of power, on the cross, we see that Jesus gives us a loving use of his power. He lays it down. He didn't use his power to accuse you, he used his power to exonerate you. He didn't use his power to give you what you deserved, he used his power to ensure that you didn't get what you deserved. This is the great grace of the gospel. This is what he plans to do. This is what Peter, Peter can't gr- grasp and what Peter's so offended at. And so then in verse 34, thanks to Peter's failure, thanks to Peter rebuking Jesus, we get a great teaching. It's life-changing. In verse 34, Thanks to Peter's failure, uh, you know, rebuking Jesus to talking about going to the cross, we get this teaching about the cross. The king who's headed to the cross turns to everybody who's following him. Right? Not the culture that has no interest in him. He turns to everyone who's following him. And he says, if you're going to follow me, you have to take up your cross. What does that mean, though? If he's come to do something we can't do, if he's come in grace to do something that we could never do, if he's come to forgive us, in which he did all of these things, then what does he mean? He says, you have to take up your cross. Well, Jesus says in verse 35, he explains it. He starts to explain it. He says, listen, if you want to save your life, you have to lose it. And if you, want, if, if you lose your life for my sake, then you'll save it. Saving and losing, saving and losing. Some of your English translations say gaining. You can gain and lose, gain and lose. This phrase that Jesus, that Jesus uses here is called a chiasm, okay? Jesus spoke Aramaic. The New, the New Testament's written in Greek, but he spoke Aramaic. And in Aramaic, there's a thing called a chiasm. I'm going to give you a visual, okay? So it looks like this. They will say things, and they will escalate to a center point, and they're balanced, they're, uh, balanced parallel phrases. And when you get to the phrase that's in the middle, that's the emphasis. That's how a chiasm works. So what Jesus does here, he says, if you want to gain your life, you're going to lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake, then you'll gain it. And so what is Jesus' whole emphasis on? Losing. But what's he trying to do? He's trying to, he's trying to get you to gain something. He's trying to get you to gain life, but his emphasis is actually losing. Which is totally counterintuitive, which is why, Je- which is why Peter rebuked Jesus. But here, here, here's the significance of this. The word life that Jesus used. You want to gain your life? You want to, you want to save your life? The word life is suke. In the Greek, suke. It's where we get our English word psyche. It's the root word for psychology. Right? So Jesus is like, if you want to gain your suke, what is, what is your, what is, when we talk about your psyche, general, in, in general terms, we're really, we're talking about our sense of self. We're talking about our identity. We're talking about the uniqueness of our individuality. We're talking about what makes us us. That's what, generally speaking, that's what we're talking about. And so Jesus says, if you want to gain a sense of self, a sense of identity, a life, a real life, a true sense of satisfaction in your soul, a calmness with who you are as an individual, to go through life with the, with the sense that you, at the deepest level of your human uh, uh, you know, existence, you are, you are satisfied, 
you have to, that can't come through gaining things. That's only going to come through losing everything. And what in the world does this mean? He's not asking us to lose our sense of self and our individuality and join the Borg, you know, join this Christian community and lose our individuality. It's not that at all. Here's what he teaches us. He teaches us that if your life, if your psyche, if your identity, your sense of self is located in gaining things, then the endless pursuit of gaining things, you're going to lose yourself. You see, Peter, Peter, the reason he rebukes Peter is Peter lost himself. I'll show you in a second. In that moment, Peter kind of of lost himself. He rebukes Jesus. If you will lose the pursuit of things as the source of your identity for me and my gospel, then you're going to find the source of true identity, true sense of self, and true life. So Jesus is not just merely, he's not just teaching about the human psyche. Jesus is the God who created our life. He created our suitcase. He created it. Jesus is not simply teaching us about identity. He insists that knowing him, the God of all creation and the Lord of our recreation, that's foundational to our identity. You're never going to know who you truly are without knowing God. You can't know the depths of the, uh, of the human longing in the soul, have a sense of, of self and of identity and rightness apart from Jesus. This is... This is what he's putting forward. This is how shocking this is. That's why he turns to everyone he's following him and goes, you know, if you're going to follow me, you've got to die to something, and this is, this is the thing you have to die to. And so, um, so we put it all back into context here. Jesus states his divinely anointed plan, what he's come to do. Peter doesn't like what he's come to do. Peter has a better plan for what Jesus has come to do. And Jesus turns to everyone and he's like, You all need to die to your plans. If you're going to follow me, you better die to your plan to what you think I've come to do. That's just kind of putting this all back into the context. You all have agendas for me. I have an agenda, P.S. I am the Christos. This is what he's provoking the followers to consider. Now, this is tremendously good news, which I'm going to get to in a minute. Now, um... So the way that we find life is we have to lose what Peter lost, right? We have to lose our agenda to what we think God needs to do. And we need to rest in the implications of what Jesus actually came to do. See, when we, when we relate to Peter like Jesus did, and we have moments when we all do, then we're really relating to him like he's a means of fulfilling our agenda. And if Jesus is a means for, for fulfilling our agenda, then we're not relating to Jesus like he's our king. Our agenda is actually king. And then Jesus, fulfilling our agenda, Jesus is serving our little king. And so Jesus is like, time out. If you're going to follow me, you've got to lay down, you've got to take up your cross and die. You've got to take up your cross to whatever it is that you've turned into a little god, a mini god, and that you've kind of oriented your life around and are serving. You've got to die to that. And you will truly find life. And so he gives us, uh, he gives us this. Now, here's the good news. The good news is that Jesus is not a needy king. He's not looking to take things from you, right? Jesus is a king who exudes generosity. He's come to restore you. And so Jesus said, if you lose your life for my sake and for the gospel's sake, then you're going to find it. We live in this world that's broken. We live in a world where we have to live guarded lives because we're not sure if we just you know, trust someone wholeheartedly and love someone without condition, if that's going to be reciprocated. So it's difficult in the world we live in, in the context we live in, to imagine that total trust and total abandonment of self and total you know, love 
could ever be a good thing because we live guarded lives. But Jesus is inviting us to see that he is a, not a needy king, he is a generous king. And he's inviting us to, to follow him in this way. And Jesus gave completely and totally for you, which is why it's safe to trust your life completely and totally to him. He gave himself completely and totally for you, and you can trust the details of your life. You can trust your agenda to him. You can trust everything to him because he doesn't need anything from you. He's constantly asking for trust. It's trust that he wants from you because everything that Jesus asks from you benefits you. So you can turn to him. You can worship him. You can call to him. You can cry to him. In verse 38 then, after this, Jesus gives this warning. And it's a pretty shocking warning. It's shocking because when we, when we think of Jesus, we, we, we think of his grace and we, we forget all of these things that he said that are really jarring to, to, to the system. So let's ex- explore what he says here at the end after he says this. He says, if you're going to gain your life, you've got to lose it. You've got to die to all your agendas. You've got to trust in me. I'm good. And then he says to all of those who are following him, he gives this warning. And he says, if you are ashamed of me, in this adulterous generation, then I'm going to be ashamed of you before my father, right? You see that at the end. Now you read that and your throat closes up and you go, oof, boy, wow, okay, what does this mean here? And Jesus uses this language, this language of adultery, and everybody would recognize it from Israel's history because it conjures up an image of unfaithfulness, right? All throughout Israel's history, you've got this faithful God continually chasing down his unfaithful people that are constantly cheating on him with other gods and other things, turning to other things, giving them their affections. So the Bible continually uses adultery as this image of uh, turning from God. So Jesus uses it here. And, and uh, when he uses it, this Old Testament metaphor, what we need to remember is that the God, the God that we see throughout the entire Old Testament was constantly faithful when his people were not faithful. And so when Jesus uses it here, we recognize that um, he is faithful. But he's calling those who follow him out of their unfaithfulness. And so all of us have moments when we are unfaithful. We all do. We're like Peter. That was a pretty serious moment of unfaithfulness. Peter knew who Christ was. He declared who Christ was. And then right after that, he's like, but I don't trust your agenda whatsoever in my life. And I think if we can put ourselves in Peter's shoes and go, yeah, often as the followers of of God, um, that's us. Yes, I knew who Christ is. Yes, I believe in the resurrection. I absolutely do not trust you with the agenda of my life. This is the agenda you need to be on, Jesus. And Jesus is like, well, you need to die to that. I'm not going to be subservient to your little king. But he does it because he's gracious and he's, and he's loving. So this warning does not apply to... Uh, so you, there is no reason for you to fear that... At Christ's return, he's going to somehow forsake you. There's no reason for you to fear that if you are one who is struggling, like Peter was struggling, uh, with your faithfulness. But you do have a reason to worry about it. Not you, I'm saying the, 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 the universal you. Okay, All followers of Christ, those who claim to be followers of Christ, but have total indifference to the lordship of Christ, and total indifference to uh, uh, the, the, the kingship of Christ. They have a reason to be concerned. And that's who Jesus is warning. He turns to everyone who's following him. Disciples and everyone who's following him. 
And he says, you know, if you're adulterous, then you have a reason to be wor- uh, worried about that. But all of us, our throats would close up and say, oh my goodness, that's me, though. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus is faithful when you and I are unfaithful. And so we come and we worship him and we confess and we, and, and we relish the fact that in his grace, um, he has done it all. And that none of us need to uh, leave this place wondering where we sit with Jesus when our trust is in when our trust and our hope is actually in Jesus. And so Jesus calls all of his followers out of trusting in these, these little mini-messiahs that ultimately are not going to give them the soul satisfaction, the sense of rest that their restless psyches are, are, are actually after. You see, it's one thing to have your talents and your abilities or your skills be an expression of you. It's another thing to have all of those things define you. It's one thing to have your education or your career be an expression of who you are. It's another thing to have those things define who you are. It's one thing for pleasure and recreation and family and friends to be enjoyable for you. It's another thing to have all those things define you. And what Jesus is getting at here is none of these things can define you. You can't be defined by these things. You won't gain life by these things. I define you and I name you, which is such a good place for all of us to be. Because none of us are free in, in success, if success tells us who we are, because failure will erase the fragile sense of who we are. So Jesus calls us all about, out of all of it. You want to gain your suki? <laughs> you want to gain your life? You want to have a sense of identity and self and calm and peace? Come to me. So here Jesus says this, right? We need him to tell us who we are, who we are and we can't have anything else tell us who we are. And the cross says you are loved without measure. The cross says you are loved without conditions. The cross says that you are God's child, loved with no strings attached, right? apart from anything that you do. You are, you are here this morning because you were given grace before you knew you needed it. You're here this morning given grace before you even knew, not because you deserved it, but because you didn't deserve it. And this is why we're here to relish this, and Jesus says we must come and find rest in him in this. So all of the things that are going on in your life, they're not a commentary on your value. This cross, Christ's cross, is a commentary on your value. All of uh, the things that you are struggling with and dealing with, uh, the things that you have need of or that you want, they're not a comment, commentary on your worth. The cross is the commentary on your worth. And your identity is not being defined by anything that you bring to the table. Your identity is that you're Christ's child and that by grace he's given you a seat at his table. And so, at the end of verse 38, after he gives this warning, he gives a tremendous promise. And he says at the end of verse 38, he says, none of you are going to taste, there are some of you who are standing here who aren't even going to taste death until you see the kingdom of God come in power. Well, the disciples didn't taste death because they did see the kingdom come in power. They witnessed the resurrection. They witnessed the resurrection, which was God's power on display. Tremendous display of God's power. They witnessed the global expansion of the church. A tremendous expression of God's power. When Christ's earthly ministry ended, his heavenly ministry began. And by the power of his spirit, the church multiplied and it grew in love globally around the world. And the disciples saw that. They saw that in the resurrection. They saw that in Pentecost as the Holy Spirit came and the gospel went global. They saw it with their eyes. Now, the kingdom of God began in weakness, but it won't end there. 
And in this passage, Jesus predicts his death and his resurrection, but the significance is that if there's a resurrection of Christ, if all things are in the end are going to be renewed by Christ, as you look out on the landscape of the world that we live in and the paradox that we're in and you wrestle with things and, and we try and engage to be a, a blessing to our communities and to our cities as we wrestle with all of that, we have to consider that if there is a resurrection of Christ and if in the end it's all going to be resolved and restored by Christ, then it would be futile to try and find fulfillment in anything smaller than Christ. We, now you're free to enjoy everything without being defined by anything, which is what Jesus is after here, as he turns to his disciples and calls them to himself. You see, in the resurrection and in his promised return, we find the answers to the deepest longings of the human soul. What we want is we want pleasure that knows no end, and we want health and prosperity that knows no horizon, and we want a world that's not a paradox. We live in a world of beauty and horror, and we're done with the paradox. We want to live in a world of love without hate, and joy without pain, and justice without oppression. And we want life that doesn't end. And if you are united to Christ by grace and faith today, that is precisely what is coming to you. That is precisely what he is bringing. That is precisely what he is doing. That is precisely the agenda of the divinely authorized one. And we can die to all of our agendas, and we can die to the agendas we have that we want you know, Jesus to get behind, and we can trust in that agenda, liberating us then now for life in the here and now. See, Peter thought Jesus didn't need to go to the cross, but Jesus planned on losing his life on the cross so that all of us would gain eternal life through the cross. And so as we conclude this morning, what are the implications of all of this? I mean, how do we live in light of this gospel that Jesus has promised and that he is bringing? You know, the scriptures don't make us responsible for restoration. They're very clear a king is coming to bring restoration. But the scriptures are also clear that the Christians don't just sit back as passive observers uninvolved in restoration. What we find is that Jesus calls us to him to rest in his divine plan of ultimate restoration. And then by his grace and by his spirit, he makes us ministers. Ministers of restoration. Through, he, through, through us, God continually does his great reconciliation which is what the, the letter to the Corinthians teaches us. So we're actively loving and we're actively caring and we're actively you know, li- you know, desiring uh, to love justice and mercy and walk humbly with our God, as Micah 6.8 teaches. This is all what we, what we do as a result of this. That the cross is the form of God's love for us and the fuel for our love towards others. And so the grace of Jesus, it calls us out of all of the inward curved life, the self-absorbed posture, fixated on getting what we think we need because we're trying to gain our life, liberates us from all of that outward-facing lies, liberates us to be willing to give of ourselves in consideration of what others need because we're not so obsessed with what we need. We follow a king who is generous and gave his life. And so we're free now to be generous and, and give of our lives. Let's pray. Let's pray.